It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome and so happy to be back and ready to continue on with our story from last week. Yes, part two. I am even not a fan of part like two parters. I mean, I'm I am because it's a lot of information, but it's also like, oh no, I have to wait a whole week to figure out this conclusion. But this one is so worth it. I'm yes. so excited. It is so worth it. Well, and sometimes I feel like um, I, you know, sometimes we'll hear something that's in two parts and I'm like, oh, that really could have been one part. And so I feel like we try to avoid two parts oh, yeah. if we can. But in this case, I mean, there really was just too much information. It would have been way too long. I mean, it could have just been one really long mega episode. We try not to do those either. Yeah. We had our friend Jennifer Garner, not that Jennifer Garner, but she's not just that one. <laughs> yeah. She wrote and said, like her son's in wrestling and has been forever and she's been like a wrestling mom and she said she even learned so much even after seeing the documentary and the movie and all that so there really is just so much information on the story and I'm super excited to talk more about it. Yeah, yeah. So we are uh, back with part two of our story on John DuPont. And uh, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you might want to go check that one out first because it has a ton of background information um, about the events leading up to the actual crime in this case, which we are going to be getting into today. So we covered a lot last week about John DuPont and the way that he was. After growing up alone with just his mom, John developed a pretty odd personality, and everybody in town knew that he was very eccentric and just downright weird. But his huge fortune kept the locals from being unkind to him, to the point that John was able to get away with things that anybody else would get in trouble for, like shooting from a moving car and impersonating police officers. We talked a little bit last week about how he would use lights and sirens on a replica police car and pull people over and issue them fake citations, which is just bananas to think about. I just think about somebody doing that. That's just crazy. It to is me. bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Absolutely. Gwen Stefani had that one right. So on top of John's quirky behaviors, he was also extremely invested in the idea of becoming an Olympian. And because this guy is really the king of manifestation. He really just goes all in whenever he has a dream and makes it his reality. He even had his fancy little mosaic of himself performing all of the Olympic sports in the pentathlon on the wall inside of his personal Olympic-sized indoor pool. Unfortunately, that dream did not pan out for him, so he set his sights on a new sport, wrestling. But he kept the Olympic touch and managed to open up a state-of-the-art Olympic wrestling club. John was able to offer something the wrestling community never had before. With his endless wealth, he paid wrestlers in his club compensation and gave them lodging and access to other amenities so they could focus solely on wrestling. This was really a huge thing for the sport of wrestling, and John became a huge asset to USA Wrestling. But although John had been extremely successful in his business endeavors, 
his mental health was taking a sharp decline, and his erratic and strange behavior started turning into scary and violent behavior that really just could no longer be ignored. After a string of very concerning things, including driving his car into a pond with a passenger inside, John developed an irrational fear of the color black. He wouldn't let anybody drive a black car. He sold all of his black horses. And the straw that ended up breaking the camel's back was that John cut all of the black wrestlers from his club. So those who were close to John tried to reason with him and explain to him that cutting the black team members was coming across as racist. But John was unfazed, and he insisted that it had nothing to do with race. As John's paranoia continued to spiral out of control, he lost grasp on reality and struggled to find a friend in anyone. But there was one man, a wrestler and a coach at the club, who genuinely liked and cared for John, and his name was Dave Schultz. As we said in part one, Dave was one of the only people that was able to keep John more even keel, and he was really probably his only friend. Dave first came into John's life after they were introduced by Dave's brother, Mark. Mark had found his way to Foxcatcher Farms really out of desperation. He said they really weren't getting any support from USA Wrestling or the government or anyone, and he actually considered joining the military or applying for welfare benefits because he really just had no money. He needed stability, and Foxcatcher was very appealing for that reason. John ended up asking Mark to be a coach at Foxcatcher, which Mark reluctantly accepted because he really felt like he didn't have any other options. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Dave in just a bit, but both Dave and his brother Mark had won Olympic medals, so Mark was definitely an asset to John's club. But Mark later said that he thought that John really just wanted to ride his coattails, so to speak. He wanted to use Mark for his name and his reputation in the wrestling community. Although John was erratic, Mark thought it was something he could deal with, so he stayed at Foxcatcher for as long as he could. But in 1988, another one of John's gun-waving incidents spurred Mark to finally leave the estate. In 1989, John offered Dave a salaried position and a place to live rent-free on the farm. Dave took this job because it would allow him to continue training himself while he was still getting paid. Dave and his family moved to Foxcatcher Farms despite Mark's warnings about John's behavior. Things really ended up not being as bad for Dave as they had been for Mark once they got settled in. By the time that Dave had gotten there, John had more wrestlers in the club to pay attention to, and Dave had his family, so he was busy and really more insulated away from John. Things were also better because there wasn't any tension between Dave and John the way there had been between Mark and John. So after Dave arrived, he really became the heartbeat of Team Foxcatcher. He ended up doing most of the recruiting for John, and people were very accepting of Dave. They loved him, and they knew how talented he was. So if Team Foxcatcher was good enough for Dave, it would be good enough for them too. During Dave's time at the farm, many of the wrestlers became really good friends with John. It was around this time that John gave himself the nickname Eagle because he was starting to refer to himself as America's Golden Eagle. And as we said in the first part of this story, John had these really like pie-in-the-sky grandiose ideas about himself. So it's not really surprising that he would refer to himself as America's anything because yes. every time he opened up a club, he called it like the National Center for or right. it was always something like so big. And it's like, wait a minute, I don't think you can just slap that on anything and call it that. He you could. Know? Like, I mean, he could, but he had the money to do so. So he was calling himself America's Golden Eagle. But I wonder if anyone called him that, or was that just him? Because I, <laughs> I feel like it was just him. I think probably did. It sounded like everybody was very accommodating and just yeah, kind of true. humored him on things. So 
Yeah, I'm sure it was. Like just part of the, you know, the the image of camaraderie among them all. They probably all called him that, which is just, I don't know how to feel about it. So the wrestlers really were just feeling that John wanted to be part of their team. And they were doing their best to be accepting of him. After all, he was doing them this huge favor of having them there in the first place and allowing them to live this life. So they thought there was really no harm in indulging John in this fantasy world of becoming a top wrestler himself. They pacified him and humored him by even wrestling with him and letting him win. And they, you know, in turn would also try to teach him social skills. Eventually, John set up what he called Masters Wrestling, which was a tournament for older people in the sport. According to the documentary Team Foxcatcher, the matches against John were all staged, but John didn't know that. So he would go out on the mat and easily beat the opponent, and everybody would cheer for him, and he would feel great and would feel like he was a real champion. But he had no idea that the other wrestler that he was matching against had actually been paid off to let him win, which, oh, my gosh. my goodness. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's so – I don't know how to feel about that because it sounds like it's one of those things where, like, everybody's in on it except for you. And it's like – that is not a good feeling. No, that's not a good place to be in. And you kind of stop doing that with your kids at like four. Yeah. You you know, I mean, it depends on the kid, but you kind of are like, okay, and now you have to learn what life is really like. And right. you can't win everything, but right. he has money. And they want him to be happy. They want him exactly. to feel happy so that he continues supporting their dreams. It's his cycle. Exactly. Yes. So out of all of the wrestlers that befriended John, it was Dave who took the biggest liking to him. He felt that John really wanted to connect with others, and Dave wanted to help him. As we mentioned in part one, John had a tendency to hone his attention on something and become obsessed with it, kind of like the 100,000 bird eggs situation. Oh, yeah, that thing? <laughs> yeah, going on. <laughs> so he would also become obsessed with specific wrestlers that were in the club. So being obsessed with, like, an inanimate object is one thing, but being obsessed with a person is obviously a little bit different. Right. At one point, John had the biggest obsession with Dave, but eventually he turned his obsession to another wrestler named Valentin Dimitriov, and this was a Bulgarian wrestler. This fixation with Valentin led to John sponsoring the Bulgarian team and deciding that he himself was, in fact, Bulgarian. People would remind him that he was not Bulgarian, but instead he was French, and he would say that, no, he was Bulgarian, and that was the reason why he had such a connection to Valentin. Had to so, be because he was Bulgarian. Dupont is a like famous Bulgarian last name. <laughs> I mean, it is. <laughs> it is to John. I guess <laughs> it is now. Um, yeah. So he just desperately wanted to be besties with Valentine, but unfortunately, that couldn't happen because Valentine was best friends with Dave, which made John extremely jealous, and the tensions began to rise between all three of them. This was a turning point for John, and he started to really focus his paranoia specifically on Dave, convincing himself that Dave had a weather machine that he used to control the weather, and he believed that Dave was using several secret tunnels under his house to mess with him. Now, there actually were tunnels under the house, but Dave was not using them, and John also thought that the people in the walls that we mentioned in the first part were also just Dave that were doing things to, I guess, mess with his mind. So he became so paranoid about this that he eventually hired bodyguards and not just any bodyguards. He didn't just call up some, you know, 1-800-give-me-a-bodyguard. He hired (laughs) people that worked for like the FBI and the CIA. So these are like official, like these are serious bodyguards. They 
Probably They're not messing multiple around. Multiple weapons. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so he said that he um, had been threatened and he needed this protection. Of course, we all know John had not been threatened by anyone. But the arrival of these bodyguards didn't actually make John feel any better. In fact, things got even more weird, and the bodyguards actually made him even more paranoid than he already was. He started having them check on stupid things. Like, he would think that the trees were mechanical and had been built by his father. And he also wanted them to go and extensively look around in the tunnels and the walls in his home. The security team used many different pieces of technology to convince John that Dave was not a threat to him. They brought in metal detectors, backhoes to dig, they x-rayed the walls, anything just to avoid telling John that he was paranoid. They just really kept playing into it to appease him and keep the money flowing. Do you know what this whole thing kind of reminds me of? I remember this meme, of course, where um, it was like, if the guy from Fifty Shades of Grey lived in a trailer, this would not be a romantic story. (laughs) Right. And it's true. Like, if somebody that didn't have money was doing all these things, you'd be like, oh, yeah, something is really wrong. But the fact that he has all this money, people are like, okay, well... You know, it's just John being John. He's quirky and like, no, actually right. he has serious problems. But the money, absolutely. And, and these people, are, a lot of them are desperate. Like this is the only way they can wrestle. So you understand how they get there. But For it, sure. like that's just been in my head the whole time, which is about how well my brain is functioning <laughs> right now. So meanwhile, John was actually becoming pretty nocturnal. He would get this burst of energy at like 11 every night. He would stay up all night walking the halls and saying just way out there things. So if you asked him a question about a piece of furniture, he'd launch into a whole spiel about it, including what kind of bugs he thought were crawling in the wood grain. In October of 1995, John randomly decided that he wanted one of the wrestlers, Dan Chade, to move off the estate. So he did what many of us would do, which would be rent a U-Haul, park it in front of Dan's place, hoping he would really just get the hint. But Dan didn't because... Why would you if somebody just right? You'd think that somebody was just parking it there like they, right. they needed it there for later, not for you. So Dan doesn't pack up and move. So John actually goes and confronts him while he's there working out. And by confront, I mean, John pulls out a gun on Dan and points it to his chest and warns him not to mess with him. And he yells, quote, I want you off this farm, end quote. Dan, who was very confused, told John he has no idea what's going on and what any of this is about. So John drops the gun, takes off running back to his mansion. Dan, of course, is horrified after this happens. But the other wrestlers there just kind of laugh it off and say it's typical John behavior, which is also bananas to be like, sometimes he pulls a gun out on you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I feel like you can excuse whenever you know that somebody, you know, is processing things a little differently and handles things a little differently. But not pulling out a gun, that's not like an excusable behavior that you can just say, oh, that's just John being John. Like that's – Miley being Miley. There has to be a line somewhere, you know? Right. Yeah, it's a lot. So Dan goes to the police, but they didn't do anything about it. They also made these excuses for John, pointing out that he was just different. Keep in mind, he really has the police department basically in his back pocket, having this firing range for them, and they come and shoot their guns there. So it's a relationship they don't want to mess up either. The guy, again, has money, and he's putting it in their pockets. So the next day, Dan wakes up to find that the house next to him was burned down. And so he, yeah, so he leaves Foxcatcher immediately goes to the USA Wrestling Headquarters and begs them to cut off their relationship with John DuPont and get the other wrestlers out of there. To me, it seems like the only person that has 
that we know of that has seen John really in this like evil state of mind coming after him and saying, okay, I go to the police. Okay, I go to the wrestling, you know, association. Doing all the right things, right? Right, yeah. So the board members hold this long meeting about the matter and were just about convinced to pull their wrestlers, you know, stop their relationship with the Foxcatcher Farms. But that's when Dave Schultz piped up on John's behalf and says that he and his own family live on this farm. And if he thought there was any danger, he was not going to stay there. And so for his part, he did not think John was going to be a danger to anyone. So Dave's statement to the board ended up being the deciding factor. And they wound up letting John do, you know, what John was doing, continuing this whole thing with the wrestling association. So in November, Dan returns to the farm to move out all of his stuff. He leaves his van parked at Dave's house, which for some reason sets John off and triggers his paranoia that Dave, specifically Dave, was out to get him, even though he's literally the reason this is still happening. So we still have more to get into, Mandy, and we will after a quick break to hear word from this week's sponsors. My daughter and I went to the library the other day, and she quickly gravitated right to the mysteries. And I don't blame her. We all love a good mystery, and I get my mystery fix by playing June's Journey, the game filled with mysteries, and it's full of twists and turns everywhere you look. When I play June's Journey, I play as June Parker, a mysterious amateur detective who finds mystery wherever she goes. One of the really fun things about this game that sets it apart from others is that I get to use my skills of observation and my very own sleuthing skills to make it further into the game. I love to play for a bit as part of my wind-down routine at night. It's fun to really just immerse myself into the world of June Parker, a woman whose life is so much more fantastical than mine. June's Journey is set in the Roaring Twenties and has amazing scenes and animation, making it a really visually stunning game. I'm in the third chapter, and I'm always pumped to see what new things the game has in store for me. And I never worry about being bored with it because new chapters are released every week, so there's always a new mystery for me to explore. There's a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. The older I get, the more I realize just how important sleep is in my life. We all know that seven to nine hours of sleep a night should be our goal, but you know what else is just as important? The quality of that sleep. And Sleep Number can help you improve your sleep quality today. As moms, we all have these little tips and tricks to get our kids to get a better night's sleep. Things like reading before bed or taking away screens or popping a melatonin. But what is it that we actually do for ourselves? A lot of times I just finish whatever work I had, lay down on my bed and hope for the best. That's where I really need my sleep number bed to help me with an assist. Thanks to my sleep number bed, I'm sleeping blissfully at a sleep IQ score of an 85 and my perfect sleep number is a 25. I'm all about the softness my bed provides me at that score. And me, without good sleep, is grumpy, irritable, and I tend to even crave junk foods just as a way to appease my tired brain. Sleep Number wants to help you get a great night's sleep like I am. Sleep Number technology helps you track your sleep, which is how I know my Sleep IQ score is an 87, so I know I'm getting better quality sleep than ever. My perfect sleep number is still a 30, but after a hard day, I'm definitely quick to move it to a 25 for an even fluffier experience. Discover special offers now for a limited time at your local Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com slash moms. Sleep Number. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now back to the episode. Okay, so before the break, we were really still diving into this crazy scenario where John DuPont has now become so paranoid that his 
one and only friend, Dave Schultz, is out to get him. And this is just kind of crazy at this time because really Dave is the only reason that John is still able to continue on with this journey that he's having into the world of Olympic wrestling. So this is a good time to talk a little bit more about Dave and who exactly he was so we can have a more clear picture of this person that John was so convinced was trying to sabotage him. David Schultz was a world-class freestyle wrestler who became a state champion in high school. He was born in California and grew up with two brothers and a sister in a middle-class family. Dave's father was an actor who played a psychiatrist on the show Hill Street Blues, and he later became a minister. His mom was a costume designer. After winning his first national and international titles, Dave became a three-time NCAA All-American and went on to become a seven-time world and Olympic medalist. His brothers both also got into wrestling. Dave was a skilled wrestler who used his intelligence more than his agility and strength to win competitions. A fellow wrestler named Chris Campbell said that Dave was scary to wrestle with because it was like he knew all the secrets of how to immobilize a body, which (laughs) that sounds pretty scary. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But he was so talented. Yeah. Very good at what he did. So Dave knew everything there was to know about wrestling, and he was a wealth of information if you had any questions at all. He was so passionate about the sport and becoming the best that he taught himself the Russian language just so that he could study and talk about the moves being used by his biggest rivals. Because as we said before, Russian wrestlers at the time were the best in the world. They might still be. I don't follow wrestling. As we said, I really don't know. And Dave knew that, you know, who better to learn from than people who are better than you. So he taught himself another language just to learn more about a sport, which is incredible. incredible. (laughs) Yeah, that's just amazing. So after college, Dave worked at Stanford University, University of Oklahoma, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison as an assistant coach. His brother Mark was also a wrestler who worked at Villanova, which is how Mark first met John and established this link between John and Dave to begin with. So unlike Dave, his brother Mark did not like John. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the episode. We said that John was known to carry a gun with him and wave it all over the place with no regard for safety, and Mark was not a fan of this. Other than competing, Dave was known for his warm personality and his love for his family. Dave and his wife Nancy had a son and a daughter, and they all meant everything to Dave. He really put them above everything else. He was known to just stop by his kids' school to have lunch with them sometimes. And he was just an extremely popular guy, very outgoing, very funny. He was really fun to be around, and people absolutely loved him. People said that he had a way about him that made you feel like you were the most special person in the world. He always gave everybody his most undivided attention. In addition to his many accomplishments in wrestling, Dave also gave inspirational talks to kids, stressing the importance of hard work and good sportsmanship. He would bring his Olympic medal and let each kid wear it and make them feel special and encouraged to follow their dreams. So we're talking about somebody who appears to be a really, really great guy. Certainly not somebody with a motive to do wrong by John. And as we said, Dave was really the only person that John could have even considered a real friend. Wow. So now back to this whole situation with Dan Chade trying to move off the estate after John has pointed a gun to his chest. One night, John security tells him that Dan was on the property and that he was over at Dave's, who was still living on the property. So John decides to go stumbling over there, drunk as a skunk, to Dave's house to confront Dan. Of course, he brings a gun with him. By the time John arrives, Dan was already gone. He actually only stayed over there about 10 minutes that night. 
Also, I'm a little confused as to why. I guess his security people were told if Dan comes on the property to tell him, but I feel like they could have told him the next day. Yeah. I, I didn't think he had to know this information, especially if he was drinking and they saw that. But yeah. that's their job. So, and, Well, I mean, yeah, but also isn't their job to like make sure that John stays safe and not like leading him into an altercation with someone potentially? Like, I don't know. I don't know what their job was because I wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> We are two sleuths. So John tries to get inside of Dave's house, but Dave tells him, hey, you can't come in. You've got a gun and you're drunk and my kids and my wife are here and he doesn't want John there causing problems. So John hands his gun over to Dave, but then he stumbles, falls, hits his head on a windowsill and cracks it open, which required him to go to the hospital to get stitches. So the next morning, John wakes up and he couldn't really remember what happened, but his face was all messed up and he was in a lot of pain. So what John did is he asked some of the wrestlers if they knew what had happened to him. And one of them commented that it looked like he'd been hit with a bat. So John's brain took that to mean I was attacked with with a bat. bat. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that Dan attacked him with a bat. So he tells the police, hey, uh, Dan attacked me with a bat. And so they contact Dave to find out more about, you know, what actually happened this night. So Dave tells the officers that what John said was a total lie. And when John found that out, he felt betrayed. So from that moment on, there's nothing but hostility for Dave. Their relationship deteriorates rapidly. Things were getting so bad that other team members, family, and friends were starting to worry that something really bad was going to happen. They all felt that really it was only a matter of time. And so everyone was begging Dave to take his family and to just leave the farm. But Dave was committed to staying until after the Olympics that year because he was a leading contender for the 1996 Games and he didn't want to risk this opportunity. Keep in mind, at this time, Dave is 36 years old, which for an Olympic athlete is kind of pushing it. It could be his last Olympics. Dave may have felt that his time to compete in the Olympics was really running out and he may not be able to even qualify for the Olympics again. So one of Dave's friends even said that he thought Dave probably felt fearless about the situation, thinking he could really handle anything crazy old John threw his way. But on January 26, 1996, John finally did the unthinkable after years of ignored reckless and dangerous behavior. That morning, 36-year-old Dave headed off to training as planned. He was going to pick up his kids from school that afternoon, but after he was finished training, he went home to have lunch with his wife, Nancy. Meanwhile, on the same day, John had told one of his security guards that he wanted to go driving around the estate to look for damage from a recent snowstorm. John, of course, took his pistol and a camera with him, and then he and the security guard got into the car and started driving around. It was about 3 o'clock that afternoon when 57-year-old John decided to drive over to Dave's house on the estate. When he pulled up, Dave walked over to John's car and said, Hi, coach. And John immediately pulled out a 44 caliber revolver and pointed it at Dave and then pulled the trigger. The security guard was still sitting in the seat beside John. Nancy heard the first gunshot ring out from the inside of the house, and when she got to the front door, she heard a second shot before looking out onto the driveway and seeing Dave face down with John pointing a gun at him from the driver's seat of his car. John then drove off, and Nancy ran outside to find that Dave had been shot three times in the chest. He was unresponsive, but still breathing for a few moments. Nancy was able to tell him that she loved him, and he died in her arms moments later. Dave was rushed to the hospital where he was pronounced dead, and a shocked and traumatized Nancy was taken to the police station to give a statement. 
Once Nancy was done talking to the police, she went home and told her kids exactly what had happened. She put it very bluntly and told them that John DuPont drove up to their house and shot their father to death. So this brings us up to where we concluded part one of the story last week with John bursting into his mansion and locking himself inside. More than 70 police and SWAT team members showed up and negotiators were brought in to speak with John. All the while, John was in there saying the craziest things, such as, quote, I have to sign these diplomatic papers. I'm the head of state. I'm in charge. And that's the way it's always going to be. So media outlets and journalists started showing up during this 48-hour standoff, and they're wanting to know what is taking so long. And they're kind of feeling like maybe John is getting special treatment because of who he was. And, of course, Mm. he's got this friendly relationship with the police because they're thinking, like, 48 hours for a standoff with, like, who's kind of an elderly man, like, you know, doesn't seem right. So they came up with this wild plan to cut off John's heat and essentially freeze him out of his house. And it did work. After two days, it was finally cold enough inside that John asked one of the negotiators if he could come out and turn on his boiler. The officer said yes, and then they apprehended him when he came outside. John was charged with first-degree murder, which could carry a death penalty sentence. His sister-in-law, Martha, told the media that she saw the signs long ago, and she kept saying something like this was coming. She said John had refused medical treatment for his mental illness for a long time. After he was arrested, John ordered all the houses on Foxcatcher Farms to be painted black to reflect how he felt inside prison, which is a little bizarre (laughs) considering he hated the color black. And that seems like maybe, I don't know, that's just another, you know, oddity in this story. He also had the sign at the estate's gate changed to read Foxcatcher Prison Farm. This is too much. It's too much. At first, (laughs) John was actually declared incompetent to stand trial. He was ordered to get psychiatric treatment at a state facility, and he ended up being diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and went on prescription medications to treat it. After two months of treatment, John was declared competent and the trial process resumed. Although he was deemed competent, his defense attorney said that in the beginning of his time in treatment, he actually refused to speak with him. When John did talk to his lawyer, he would say things like he should be tried in military court and that Dave was actually a secret Russian agent. So as his treatment progressed and the medication started working, John became a lot more communicative, but he would never admit that he had actually committed a murder. He always insisted it was self-defense because in his mind, Dave was a bad guy and he was part of some big conspiracy. So Foxcatcher wrestlers were devastated over the loss of Dave really for multiple reasons. He was this genius wrestler and he was also an incredible person. And because there were so many warning signs, they felt that they could have done something to prevent this situation. According to the Team Foxcatcher documentary, which I definitely recommend watching, Dave's murder, quote, shocked everyone back to reality, end quote. And they realized that they really shared part of the blame for what happened to Dave. And this, of course, gave them all an immense feeling of guilt. There was another issue, though. The Olympics were actually coming up, and now these athletes have no way to train. In March of 1996, Dave's wife, Nancy, created the Dave Schultz Wrestling Club, which provided support and sponsorships for the wrestlers to continue competing. The club continued to operate for another 10 years before Nancy shut it down to focus on the family. Meanwhile, authorities tried to figure out this motive behind Dave's death. This is where they learned the extent of John's erratic behavior and how so many red flags were ignored. 
This quote seems to really sum up how John had been able to act erratically for so long without any consequences. In this article for People Magazine, Bill Hewitt wrote, quote, As investigators tried to piece together a motive for this seemingly senseless killing, there emerged the sad, scary portrait of a man believed to be worth more than $50 million who was rich enough to indulge his madness and to put enough distance between himself and the world at large to ensure that no one really bothered him about it, end quote. Which, yeah, yeah. that's exactly it. Hits <laughs> yeah. a nail on the head. Authorities really never did figure out a motive, but Mark Schultz, Dave's brother, has a theory. He said, quote, he admired us and at the same time was jealous of us, kind of hated us in a way because we had what money couldn't buy, end quote. Mm. And that actually gives me chills because that's yeah. exactly what it is. He, he, his whole life was these obsessions and things he wanted to be a part of, but ultimately he wasn't a wrestler and he was never going to be. Right. And he wasn't an Olympian. And that, mm-hmm. that kind of said that in the, you know, in the first episode, how I was like, yeah, the Olympics is not for everyone. No. Um, but he became fixated and obsessed with this idea of making it to the Olympics one day. And he, it just wasn't for him. Yeah, and his whole life he had money and he's able to get out of things and buy things and buy friends and all this stuff. And then finally it comes down to it and he can't do that. And so we still have more to get into this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. When I'm feeling stressed, I tend to resort to behaviors that aren't really good for me. Things like doom scrolling. One minute I'm thinking life is going okay, and the next minute I'm scrolling through Twitter and have concocted 30 different ways something bad will probably happen to me or someone in my family the next week. It's in times like these that I'm thankful that I have my therapist with better help to talk through these intrusive thoughts that I tend to have when I'm on a bit of a downward spiral. You may think therapy is only a thing to utilize when there are big traumas in your life, but it's really so much more than that. BetterHelp counselors help with things like anxiety, depression, family, and more. Whether you're looking for someone to talk to about those life-changing problems or if you're down in the dumps and need some help from a real therapist, BetterHelp has you covered. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anybody on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash moms. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. We're all crunched for time, and sometimes taking care of yourself can feel more like a luxury instead of a necessity. Noom wants to help you take care of you without a restrictive diet or workout program. Noom Weight uses psychology to help empower you and teach you practical ways for you to be able to take care of yourself with sustainable habits and behaviors. For me, I feel so much better when I'm eating healthier. My skin is better, my mood is better, and overall, I just feel good. I've tried restrictive eating in the past, and what should be a way for me to stay on a path of eating better for me foods becomes an obsession with points or calories, and it gets into unhealthy territory really quickly. What I love about Noom is that it's all about the marathon, not the sprint. There's days I'll go off track, but that's okay. I know I can just pick up and start the next day. I'm not trying to weigh a certain number. I really just want to feel better, which is why I gravitate towards Noom. They know everyone's journey is different, and they meet you right where you are. And you're the one that's in charge of the program. It's about a lifestyle and not a quick fix. I really love the daily lessons on the app and how I'm feeling after being on the program. Sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support and motivation to reach your goals at noom.com moms. That's noom.com slash moms to sign up for your trial. 
step into the glitzy world of June's journey and prepare for an adventure that's out of this world. Get ready to ditch the dull and dive into a world where mystery meets glamour and where June Parker's drama-filled escapades will have you hooked faster than you can say flapper dress. Whether you're itching for a whodunit fix or just craving an escape from the mundane, June's journey is your ticket to excitement. Follow June as she unravels family secrets and untangles the web of mystery surrounding her sister's death. It's like joining a high society soiree, but with way more intrigue and way fewer dull conversations about the weather. Just kidding. You know we love a weather chat. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and immerse yourself in a world where every corner holds a new clue and every twist keeps you guessing. But hold on to your pearls because June's journey isn't just another run-of-the-mill mobile game. I'm already knee-deep in the fifth chapter of June's journey, and each chapter is more fun than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the toe-tapping music, everything about June's journey screams class. So what are you waiting for? Step into June's world and let the adventure begin. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how John DuPont has just been arrested in the very shocking, very sudden, cold-blooded murder of Dave Schultz. His trial began on January 21st, 1997. Prosecutors didn't deny that John had some serious issues, but they did say that those issues did not meet the legal standard for insanity. They said that he was rich and arrogant, and he believed he could get away with murder. They also pointed out that John had been more and more angry with Dave in the year prior to the shooting. So in the state of Pennsylvania, where this story um, and this trial took place, the jury was only able to find John guilty by reason of insanity if they believed that he didn't know that it was wrong to kill Dave at the time that he committed the shooting. They said that it was pretty clear that John wasn't insane at the time of the murder since he had the wherewithal to go back to his mansion and lock himself inside to avoid arrest, all while asking for an attorney numerous times. So why would he do any of that if he didn't know he had done something wrong? Right. So keep in mind, though, prosecutors know how rich John is, and they were concerned that his wealth would put them at a disadvantage in the courtroom. And they're right, of course, because John was able to afford for his defense to do things that most people cannot afford for their defense teams to do. Like they ran two focus groups and John was able to hire the best psychiatrist in the world. And he had all these other luxuries that only are afforded to super, super wealthy people, not everybody who's on trial for murder. Right. So prosecutors decided that their best bet was to portray John as being a self-absorbed, entitled rich guy, which was easy for them to do because that's actually exactly what they believed him to be. They called him, quote, the wealthiest murder defendant in the history of the United States, end quote. They said that John was just one of those people that was a jerk, and it didn't matter whether he was born a jerk or made into one, he was still a jerk and a mean guy. And they said that his wealth enabled him in a way that led to these very tragic circumstances. The defense told the jury that John was not guilty by reason of insanity, stating that he was legally insane when he killed Dave Schultz. And this was evidenced by the fact that he believed Dave was part of some conspiracy against him. John looked completely different for his trial, probably in an effort to make himself look insane. He actually grew out his hair and his beard and just didn't like maintain them so he looked very unkempt during the trial and he wore the same clothes every day which was not shockingly uh, a set of blue and gold fox catcher warm-up sweats 
The defense brought in psychiatrists to testify that John had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and they introduced brain scans to prove this, and that was a pretty new thing at the time. During the closing arguments, the defense told the jury that they were, quote, an eyewitness to insanity, spectators to a kaleidoscope of madness, end quote. Whoever wrote that clearly got paid a lot. That is... Yeah, that's a line. That's a big sentence. (laughs) That is a line. So on February 25th, 1997, after deliberating for seven days, the jury, which was comprised of six men and six women, found that John DuPont was mentally ill and guilty of third-degree murder, which meant they thought he acted with malice, but not premeditation. He was also convicted of assault for pointing a gun at Nancy and at his own security guard. So in light of this verdict, John now faced up to 40 years for third-degree murder. Because he had no record, he could be paroled after just five years. According to the Washington Post, quote, the lengthy deliberations spawned concerns that the trial might end with a deadlock jury. The panel apparently discarded early on the defense's contention that DuPont was insane at the time of the murder before settling on a compromise between first-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter, end quote. The quote-unquote guilty but mentally ill verdict meant that before he was sentenced, John would undergo another psychiatric evaluation that would determine if he should receive treatment or if he should be sent to prison. But either way, John would have to serve his sentence. If the jury had found him not guilty by reason of insanity, John most likely would have been sent to the hospital until doctors felt like he was quote-unquote cured, and then he'd go free because he wasn't actually found guilty of murder. Dave's father said that the family felt that the verdict could have been better, but they could live with it. John's defense team was pretty happy with the outcome as well. John ended up being sentenced to 13 to 30 years, which he spent in various mental hospitals and prisons. All of his appeals were unsuccessful. In 1997, Dave Schultz was posthumously inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. His wife Nancy and their children eventually moved back to California, where she filed a civil suit against John. They ended up settling out of court for an undisclosed amount, and I hope she got a pretty penny. Yeah, exactly. If he's painting the whole town black and changing all the stuff he's able to do from prison, my gosh. Right. Foxcatcher Farms became a hideous eyesore with deteriorating buildings and overgrown weeds everywhere. In 2008, the Episcopal Academy bought 125 of the acres of the estate and they built a new campus there. The rest of the estate was sold in the late 2000s for $28.5 million. The mansion on the estate, however, was too dilapidated to restore, so they tore that down. A few acres were made into a park, but then much of the estate was developed into upscale houses that sold for about $2 million apiece. On December 9, 2010, John died in prison of natural causes at the age of 72. Shortly before his death, he approved a final will that stated that he was to be buried in his red foxcatcher wrestling suit. Question, how can you do this when you're in prison? I didn't know I have you no could clue. Do I didn't know you like could chew. Well, I mean, I don't know. I feel like they do try to honor people's wishes. Like I thought you got things. buried at the prison. I'm you such can, an idiot. Oh my gosh, can you imagine if like the prison was actually your final resting place forever? <laughs> I I swear to you, I'm pretty there's... sure they get to bury them like wherever they want, right? Like after they actually No, that makes sense, Mandy. You're making want. a lot of sense. I guess I just <laughs> You're like, I didn't think it you through. You die in this prison and then you go to the prison graveyard right? for all of eternity. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, that was that's on me. That's Terrible. on me. 
So John's will also said that 80% of his residuary estate should go to Valentin Dimitriov, which was the guy he had his last obsession on, um, and his family, which, hey, good for that guy. He got something out of it, um, right. which uh, it was just a strange place for John to um, allot his money. In 2014, a movie based on John and his recruitment of Mark and Dave Schultz was released. The movie was entitled Foxcatcher, and it starred Steve Carell as John, Channing Tatum as Mark, and Mark Ruffalo as Dave. Mark served as a producer on the film, and uh, it was very well received. It was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Director. And uh, prior to this movie's release, John's trial attorney told the Courier Post that he hoped the producers portrayed John's mental illness properly instead of just depicting him in this cartoonish way like Hollywood sometimes does. His attorney said, quote, I'm anxious to see if they do justice to his illness. It's so easy to paint him as an evil man. But on the other hand, the reality is that he was a really sick man, end quote, which is Definitely an important thing to remember in the story. For Not that sure. whatever he did was okay, but it's important to realize that mental health was a huge factor in this case. And absolutely, it, with proper treatment, he could maybe this could have been prevented. So Anne O'Neill, who grew up to, uh, next to Foxcatcher Farms, wrote in her CNN article, "Quote: Carell captures this entitled homicidal nut so well that I completely forgot I was watching a guy who plays it for laughs in Judd Apatow comedies." Also in 2014, Dave's brother Mark published a memoir titled Foxcatcher, The True Story of My Brother's Murder. And that is the end of this story. <laughs> yeah, that's the end of the story. Wow. That is, it's so incredibly sad. As we said, Dave was just a wonderful, wonderful person. And for him to have just been blindsided, betrayed, backstabbed, you know, by this guy that he had done nothing but try to help. It's really terribly sad. And my heart just goes out to Nancy and their kids who had to lose him that way. If you even think of how he approached John that night, just walking up to him and saying, hi, coach, like, it's you know, that wasn't in a sarcastic way. It was him showing him respect, being kind to him, being a friend to him. Right. And to, I don't know if something about that really struck me like, oh, my gosh, like. This guy really was looking out for you. And then the other thing, something earlier in the story when we talked about him having this mental illness, but also being a jerk, like those two things can happen at the same right. time. Those two things can go hand in hand. They're so. not mutually exclusive. Yeah, right. for sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the wilder stories I think we've covered. I know we joked around sure. last week that I was a little behind the times for not have ever having heard of this story before. But yeah, I'm very happy that I now know all the ins and outs. Yeah, and I think you should definitely the documentary is really really well done, but the movie is really good as well. It's it's for me seeing Steve Carell in that role, it was wild, but he does a it was great different. job. Yeah, yeah, I watched it. It was definitely something Oh, did different. you? Okay. I did. Yeah. yeah. Mark Ruffalo, I thought they were all really good. Yeah, they were. Okay, so we're going to move on and go to our last thing before we go, which I'm super excited about this week because we decided something that we may never do again was to ask oh, no. um, you this lovely listeners <laughs> for um, suggestions for this week. So we are obviously been talking about wrestling. Last week we did a little funny, silly thing where Melissa and I made up names for actual wrestlers that exist in the world. And this week we asked you guys on our social media uh, accounts if you would send in some names that you would give us if we were wrestlers, Melissa and I. And boy, did we get – some responses. <laughs> Some responses I would like to think were people making up names and not actually associating them with us. Because if they were, 
they were hurtful. So, um, some of but, them were a little shocking. <laughs> <laughs> some were where Mandy, like I tech, we were texting back and forth and she was like, did we ask to be roasted? Like I'm confused <laughs> on what happened. It's like whenever you ask your kid, like, how do I look? And then they tell you and you're like, oh, okay. It, was no, just not like that. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mandy. So let's get started. We're going to uh, list several of these, I'm sure. So what we're going to do is uh, go back and forth with these nicknames that people gave us and we'll pick our top two and maybe we'll put it on Facebook or Instagram to vote for the the people's choice, right? Their, their favorite. And we'll send some merch to or something. Yeah, we'll do that. All right. Mandy, do you want to kick it off? I will let you kick it off, Melissa, because okay. I have a few really good ones, but some I don't want to open with these. I want to get them okay. as we go okay. along. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. Okay. First one is from the Lauren Phelps on Instagram, and she had Mama Hen and Pop Culture Princess. And you Pop can see why Culture I Princess. That. that is uh, yeah. totally you. That's you of all course. day. <laughs> I will take that one. I didn't even really realize what she read about you, but I would like the Pop Culture Princess. So currently, that's number one in my book. Go ahead, Mandy. What do you have? Perfect. Okay, so um, we have one here from Kelly Zimmerman. She was on our Facebook, and she suggested... Mean Machine Mandy and Melissa the Marauder. Ooh. I don't even know what that word means. How do you spell it? <laughs> Melissa, do you want me to spell it for you? <laughs> yeah, I'm writing it down. I'm going to Google it. It's M-A-R-A-U-D-E-R. Never even heard of it. Does she mean murderer? Does she know something I don't know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like it. I don't get it, but I like it. I like yours. Yours is nice. Mean Machine. That's me. Yeah. I'm like super it. mean and a machine. Yeah, I mean, machine. <laughs> um, okay, my next one is Anna Vanis on Instagram. And she said, toilet finisher and skater beast. Oh, I love skater beast. Isn't skater beast good? <laughs> <laughs> toilet yeah, finisher is, you know, um, it is me. But uh, yeah, no, I like it. Okay, <laughs> I love that one. Okay, so I these... These made me laugh so hard. So this next one is from our friend Haley Farron. And I am assuming, I did not go and um, Facebook stalk her, but I'm assuming that she may live in the Northeast and you'll see why whenever you hear her suggestion. Okay. So hers were Mandy the Maniacal. Maniacal? 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 (laughs) (laughs) You know how when you look at words and you know they're a word, but then like you say them and you're like, that's not right. Every time I say carotid artery, (laughs) I started off with carotid. Maniacal. (laughs) Thank you for saving me there. Mandy the Maniacal. That works for me. And I don't know where this came from, but Wicked Pissa Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's my favorite. Uh, I love that one. All right. Wicked Pissa Melissa. Okay, great. (laughs) Nothing rhymes with Melissa. This is a very exciting day for me. Okay, the next one is from the Carrie Monster, uh, and this says "cluck you up," which I get oh. that well, one's good for you. And mine is "rules rule," <laughs> which is very sweet. She said she's a rulesy person too, but I'm like, oh man, I might not have a personality. I am rules rule. I like it though, Carrie. Good job. So this one's from our friend um, Casey Tachel. Tachel, I'm so sorry. We're not very good at pronouncing names. Um, she said Coke Zero Tolerance, which is so good perfect for you, Melissa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Chicken Choker for me, but mm, <laughs> I want to call you that now <laughs> just because allowed. it makes you uncomfortable. It I want to call you that in front of people. <laughs> <laughs> 
So our dear, dear friend, uh, Mandy Delp, um, the number two Mandy, uh, on Instagram, she had a couple of good ones. I really like these. Ready? Mandazzle, the junkyard dog. Oh, no. (laughs) It's just a good wrestling name. It is. It's a great one. It's really good. And also the chicken scrapper for you. And mine would be Melodrama, Real Housewives of Tallahassee, which is less of a wrestling name and more of a personality trait. And uh, the Coke Zero Crusher. So I appreciate you guys knowing my new drink of choice. This is this is really fun. I love that. Okay, I have one last one. And I love these. These are so funny. They're perfect. I love them. so. And this is super creative to me. I sent this one to you earlier. Uh, so this one is from our friend Lisa um, Stom, looks like. And she suggested Diet Malicious and Lady Chimandy. <laughs> <laughs> I am obsessed with Diet Malicious. I feel like that one is my favorite one. I loved all of them that we got. We got so many good suggestions and some that I, like you said, I was like, are we getting roasted? Did we sign up to be roasted? But there were so many good ones. Oh yeah, you have more? I've got two more. Okay. And there, I think you'll love them. And then you've got to pick out your favorite one, okay? Okay. Um, Mandy, meat pie or corn nut crusher. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh, That's Kay Vasquez. And Melissa, Rick rolled over in her grave, which I appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that one caught me off guard. I loved it. I okay. love that. And my last one is Ginny Spyhowski. That's that's the best I can do. Um, I think she thinks you are the second one, but I think it's actually supposed to be me too. The pop culture vulture. That's amazing. I absolutely <laughs> love that. And the punishing rule follower. People Ooh, really. Those are both you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the punishing rule breaker could be you. You can trade yeah. it off a little right yeah mandy do you have a favorite for you i don't know if i have a favorite for me what is your favorite for me i told okay. you my favorite for you is yeah. definitely diet malicious oh and then somebody <laughs> had a v vintage white tag team the weather girls appreciate oh, that oh, one I so good that. um i i like skate beast a skater beast i think that's a good one for you beast. yeah that skater is a really beast. good one all right, so Skater Beast and Diet Malicious. That's us. Skater Beast, there we go. Diet Malicious. Thank you guys We're ready for so the much. <laughs> yeah, please don't make me go in the ring. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> I'll yeah, those were, toilets. <laughs> those were so good. Thank you to everybody who um, sent in a suggestion for us. You guys are really creative. You guys had some really yeah. like, like better, more creative than we are. And less thank we you to you guys people. The yeah. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. And less thank you to the people who... Um, Maybe reread yours. Maybe say it out loud and say, would I want to say this about myself? And then um, (laughs) because a few people truly were like, oh, I didn't read it right. I wrote about something else because some of them were a little confusing. But some of them, there was like two that I was like, Mandy, we're going to have to do like crying in the shower tonight after reading these. These are are rough. I feel like Michael Scott and we just got roasted. Okay. (laughs) This was so fun though. I enjoyed it. So fun. So fun. All right, guys. We will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Later, skater beast. (laughs) Bye-bye, Diet Malicious. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.